So today is the 29th of November 2016. I'm Adrian Croucher and tonight I'm going to be giving a Coming to the Path talk. So what is a Coming to the Path talk? It's just a talk about how I came to be doing um, Zen practice, what, what drove me to do it. And so how did I end up on this path of, of Zen practice? In one sense, I think um, the answer, with uh, apologies to Bodhidharma, has to be, I don't know. Um, a lot of the most important things that have happened to me in my life seem to have come about, apparently at least, by, by chance, by combinations of circumstances. Um, and I often don't really feel like I, I understand them completely, um, but I just try and be open to them. Maybe if I spent more time planning out my life, uh, maybe even better things would happen to me that I did um, understand how they came about, but that doesn't seem to be how it's worked so far. But uh, broadly speaking, uh, it's been well, it's been an interesting process thinking about this talk and preparing for it and looking back on my life so far and trying to think about uh, why I might have ended up on this path. And I can identify some some sort of underlying themes or threads that go through my life, um, and I suspect these these threads which have led me towards this path are probably very similar to those that get a lot of people into Zen practice or other kinds of similar practice. Um, so they probably manifest in different people's lives in, in different ways, maybe very different ways. So there, there are really two, two main things which I think uh, I can think of as, as being the, the things that have got me into this practice, just speaking very broadly. The first one is curiosity. This is um, curiosity about, about what the world is, what, what I am, who I am, what we are, what life is, the, the big question of life, the universe and everything, as Douglas Adams had it. Uh, one of my favourite authors, Russell Hoban, uh, wrote a, a novel in which one of his characters said, if reality had a stage door, I'd hang around there to see what comes out after the show. That's kind of how I feel about reality as well. I see what's going on behind the scenes, around behind the, the backstage, and behind the curtain, and what's happening underneath. And the second thing, apart from curiosity, is uh, suffering. Um, what we call dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness, the endless unsatisfactoriness of uh, unenlightened life. Uh, our starting often from our own suffering and then often widening out into consideration of the suffering of other, other beings and, and how to respond to it. What do we do? How can we help? So these two things, these curiosity and suffering, I think are the, are the things that the underlying kind of causes which have manifested in different ways in my life to point me in the direction of, of Zen practice. 
Oh, before I go any further, I should say, um, for, particularly for new people, it's okay to move a few times during these talks. They're a bit longer than a round of sitting, so it's all right to move a little bit. Um, so where to start with my own life? Well, thinking about these, these things, the curiosity and the suffering, I can, um, I can see them going back to before the start of my own life, actually. Um, a few examples. First, my, my grandfather, my, my mother's father. One thing I, I really remember most about him was sometimes we would go visit my grandparents and if it was a, a clear night, he might get his telescope out. He had this telescope which lived in a couple of wooden boxes and if, if it was the right sort of night, he might get that out and start showing us the stars and the planets and the moon. And I found this completely fascinating. These little points of light that I could see with my eye suddenly turned to these other completely different things. Fascinating things. These planets with little bands of colour and little moons of their own. The rings of Saturn and these binary stars that just look like one star but when you looked at them with the telescope there's actually two in there. Uh, I think this was a big contributor to my own, um, my own curiosity about the universe and uh, my own later obsession with astronomy and space when I was a little bit older. But also this sense of things not being quite what they seem. That when you look at them closely they can turn into something else a bit more mysterious and strange and interesting. <coughs> so I can see that curiosity in me uh, beginning uh, in, in, in my grandfather and and probably um, further back, I don't know where he got it from. And after him, my own father, um, he's also manifested the same kind of curiosity throughout his life and he's also, I think, felt a need to help other people throughout his life too. He left school when he was 14 um, during the Second World War to help support his family and he worked as a farmer to begin with. But yeah, this curiosity manifested in his life too. He would be sometimes uh, alone in the cow shed and there was a radio in the cow shed and he, he sometimes told me about how when nobody else was around he would explore around the radio dial this radio and he found uh, these other radio stations that he didn't know about with things like classical music on that he'd never heard before. This was just amazing to him. And, and really sparked his own curiosity. And when he was a little bit older, he travelled to Europe, um, which wasn't something that everyone did really back then. He had to go by ship, and it was a long journey. Uh, but he did that. <coughs> when he came back, he, he, I think he had a memory from his own childhood of a teacher that he had, he'd had who had really helped him and, and inspired him. And so he decided he would become a teacher, and, and maybe that way he could help other people in some way. Um, so he became a teacher and met my mother who was also a teacher at the time. And they were both also involved in the, in the church to some extent. Um, and at some point my father decided that he wanted to try to become a, a, a minister in the church so that he could again to help people somehow. Um, so he began university training to become a minister 
um, wasn't easy because he'd left school early um, and by this stage my elder brothers had started appearing um, so he was delivering bread in the middle of the night to try and support his growing family and trying to study during the day and one thing he came across during his study was philosophy he studied philosophy as part of his training there and he really loved that it made him question all kinds of things um, Fortunately or, or unfortunately, one of the things that made him question was um, his faith. So he didn't, in the end, continue down that route of becoming a minister. Um, and by the time I came on the scene in 1969, uh, my parents really weren't involved in the church at all anymore. Um, and I, as a consequence, I, I never went to church when I was young. And there was very little in the way of religious instruction at school. It was, it was pretty token. Um, it was a you know, secular sort of school and uh, there wasn't really much. I didn't really have much exposure to the, to the church really when I was young. I grew up mostly in a very large house in the, in the country on a 10-acre block that my parents had bought. And a big old two-storey house my parents and my two older brothers. This house was built around the start of the 20th century. It was quite dark and a bit mysterious. Um, it seemed like the sort of place where you might find ghosts. And I think my, my mum told me once that one night she actually sat up on the stairs just in case you might see one, but you know, I never saw one. I don't think anything bad had really happened in that house. Any ghosts hang around, but it was a sort of dark and mysterious house. Um, it had a large property with forest, native forest on down the bottom and a stream. So when I grew up I was always going exploring and I guess growing up in that sort of environment really instilled in me this love of, of nature, being in nature, which I, I still have. In the mid-1970s when I was about six years old, my parents decided to take us all out of school and they built a house bus and decided to go travelling around the country in it for a year or two. So we all piled into this bus, all, all, all five of us and the dog and the potbelly stove uh, and went travelling. And my parents both having trained as teachers, we did correspondence school. We would uh, roll up to places and first thing we always did, we'd pile out of the bus, me and my brothers and and always go explore it. Oh, let's go explore it. Why, you know, find out what's, what there is here. Uh, it was a really wonderful kind of formative experience um, and gave me a quite different sort of education, I guess, than I would have had if I hadn't had it. Um, had some holes in it. I, my parents weren't really all that keen on phys ed, so um, I never learnt to swim very well or catch or throw a ball or anything like that until I, we got back from our our travels and I went to a normal school again and it was a bit of difficult adjusting to a sort of normal school environment again after that um, and I often felt like a bit of an outsider. When I was 10 years old um, my, my grandfather who I mentioned before died and this was the first time I'd experienced a, a death in my, in my family, my close family and although I was very young 
was quite deeply affected by this, unexpectedly so really, um, because I was so young and because of the, the times being as they, as they were then, I wasn't allowed to see his body after he died, so he just sort of vanished and um, it was all very, very quite upsetting and confusing for me. And for some reason it was kind of strange because, because I'd never had any sort of uh, anything to do with the church. Um, I felt I needed to do something and I remember after this, after experiencing my grandfather's death, I, I began praying to God, even though I didn't really know how to do it. Um, I did it anyway and I guess I was looking for some kind of a response. Um, unfortunately, it never, never really came. <laughs> Uh, so, after a time, um, this career slipped away again, and uh, that was that. Um, one thing that did happen as a result of all this, though, was I, because um, I'd, I'd um, already manifested this interest in astronomy and space and stuff, I, I inherited my grandfather's <coughs> telescope, and I still have it today. It's still sitting in its wooden boxes at home. So um, school, I went to school so in, in South Auckland where I grew up near Papakura. School I went to uh, wasn't, wasn't I would say a particularly good one. Um, there was quite a mixture of people there, classes were sometimes largely a kind of exercise and crowd control um, and sometimes not a lot of learning went on. Um, one, of my, one of my elder brothers had, well we'd all been to the same school, they'd been to the same school ahead of me and he'd always been one of those naughty boys. He'd always been in trouble one way or another and his, reputa his reputation preceded me so they were pro probably expecting more of the same when I got there. Um, he had increasing problems with alcohol as, uh, as he grew older and, um, and had a lot of friction between him and my father and one really um, painful memory I have, I was probably about 12 or 13, 14 maybe, was of the two of them um, fighting, um, like physical fight um, in, in earnest and that really made, a, made an impression on me and it made an impression on me in terms of how I, how, how I had a relationship with, with alcohol. Really, I could see the damage that it did uh, right up, up close and later on in my teens I actually kind of went completely teetotal. I, I, I was completely put off anything that sort of affected the mind in any obvious way. Um, alcohol even, um, or definitely drugs and there were other things going on at the same time. I don't know, this is probably the early 80s, there was quite a lot of emphasis I remember about um, the road toll, trying to get the road toll down. There were all these people dying on the roads and one thing I remember from school was this production that came to, to the school was some sort of a theatre piece about um, alcohol and, and the road toll and you know, death on the roads and all this sort of thing. It was all very quite violent and <laughs> a bit traumatic. I remember the one song that was sung by the, the tow truck driver and his, and his song went, um, Only make my living as long as they keep dying. 
all the stuff, and also a book that I remember one of my teachers reading us when I was at intermediate school, um, which had a lot of stuff about uh, gang warfare and, and these adolescents doing, um, doing acid trips, and some of them having these terrible acid trips in the book, where they uh, imagine their hands are turned into snakes and they're trying to thrust them through windows, and, or they imagine the giant insects striding along across the motorways and things like this, and all this just completely put me off sort of alcohol and drugs. I was like, just wanted to have nothing to do with it. Uh, um, and yeah, I went completely detailed. Even tea and coffee, I thought, were, no, I don't want those either um, for a while. I, I kind of relaxed about it a bit later on. At the time, it just seemed like I, I didn't want to have to do with anything which clouded the mind. It was like the opposite of what I wanted. I felt like my mind was already clouded enough and, and going down that route was... It's just going to be a dead end. It was really just the opposite from what I wanted. When I was about 13 or 14, uh, another memory from school was a visit from a guy called Ham Wall. He was a Kiwi who had trained in a Zen monastery in Korea and come back to New Zealand um, as a monk. And through some strange combination of circumstances, I don't know, but he started doing these school visits and he came to my school. So in the middle of this, this school in South Auckland, here was this guy in his robes, his shaved head. Uh, if my memory serves me right, he sat cross-legged on the teacher's desk and, and cracked jokes. And <laughs> we didn't know what to make of him, but we thought he was pretty cool. But, well, this guy's interesting. And he definitely made an impression on me. Um, I, I, I can remember him quite clearly. And I guess he was probably the first um, obvious Buddhist that I ever saw, even though I didn't really know what one was. So school went on. Um, <coughs> when I was 16, I had a good teacher. This is the <laughs> first good teacher I'd had really at school, I would say. Well, maybe not quite the first, but he's definitely the best teacher I had at school. Uh, guy called Mr Hunt and he was a bit eccentric and he really encouraged kids to, to think for themselves and, and, and do original things which he'd done himself. Um, yeah, I had him for science and physics in Form 6 and somewhat to my surprise I found that I was quite good at this physics stuff and I found it really interesting. Um, finding out about the workings of the universe and on, on the very large scales like in, 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 the, in the large scale universe but also in the very small. I found that very fascinating as well. As molecules and atoms and subatomic particles and all this sort of stuff. Uh, I found it really fascinating. And this teacher, Mr Hunt, um, was really encouraging and was one of the first people who encouraged me to think, oh, maybe you could you could maybe go to university, which wasn't something that many kids from my school really did. It wasn't that kind of school. Um, so this was a this was a, a new thing. It was partly this fascination with with the, the universe, this curiosity being reawakened, I guess, uh, and also just I guess my ego being quite happy about finding something that I was good at. Uh, so both of those things combined to me really interested in this. Another thing I discovered at about the same time 
was girls. I'd been really shy up to that point and um, had never really been able to even think about talking to girls until I was about 16, around about that time. And uh, this was really interesting stuff. These girls were quite interesting people actually. And um, of course, inevitably, I fell in love with one of them. And um, after some months of sort of stewing over this and trying to get my courage together, I finally uh, went off and told her that I was in love with her and unfortunately suffered this crushing um, defeat because she didn't feel the same way and uh, I hadn't really thought about that being <laughs> a possibility. <laughs> so this was, this, I took it pretty hard. Although I was only like 16 and you know, just a sort of adolescent um, crush probably, but yeah, I, I took it pretty seriously and pretty hard. And in my final year at school when I was 17, I effectively became a recluse. I retreated into my, my work. It was partly this, this curiosity about the universe that I was really wanting to explore through physics and astronomy um, and a uh, combination of things that and this sort of this um, academic success that I was starting to starting to have and and enjoy um, my my ego enjoying that I guess um, but also a couple of other things my father always had a really strong sort of work ethic and uh, I guess I tried to to live up to that as well. I wanted to work hard, partly, partly to, um, to please him, perhaps. Um, but yeah, a large part of it was this sense that the world of people and relationships was something unsafe. <laughs> it had been, it had been, uh, it had been quite, quite upsetting and, and, and unsafe feeling for me. Um, so I retreated into myself and into my work. I decided I was going to become an astrophysicist and so my last year at school I just, I had no time off, I had no holidays at all during the whole year. I worked seven days the whole year, um, didn't really keep up with friends at all, didn't go out, just studied and thought and read and decided I was going to try and sit these scholarship exams, I don't know if they still have them, but it was this kind of extra exam you could do at the end of Form 7. Um, on top of the usual ones and basically nobody at my school ever thought about doing those, hardly anyone, um, um, but I decided I was going to have a, have a crack at this. Unfortunately my, uh, I'd had that great teacher in, in, when I was 16 but the one I had in my last year of school was hopeless, <laughs> a real disappointment and was only interested in kind of rote learning and regurgitating things. So I I learned how to teach myself. Um, I was so fascinated by this stuff, I decided I wasn't going to let this teacher stop me, I was going to teach myself. And so that's what I did for that year. And also spent a lot of, a lot of nights outside alone with this telescope of my grandfather's and looking at, looking at what was there. Um, there was a book that I came across at this time called The Dancing 
Wu Li Masters. This is one of these books that was around at the time. It was a kind of crossover book between um, quantum physics, which I was really interested in, and Eastern religion. Um, there's been a few of them. This is one I just found in the local library and uh, I was getting really interested in this, in this quantum physics stuff and this book really shocked me. It was, I, on reading this book I, I, I got the sense that the, sen the sense of things really not being what they seem. Um, I remember thinking that when I reach out and touch something solid like a table or a chair or something like that, uh, it's not the solid thing, it's this, this strange, mysterious, these patterns of energy kind of flickering in and out of existence all the time and mostly there's nothing there at all. It's all, this, all these new ideas which I got from this book was a real shock for me but um, on, a, on a real sort of experiential level as well in my everyday life it was like, yeah this is really fascinating but if all, the, all our common sense ideas about the world are really kind of wrong or at least limited then how should we live? Like, how do, what sort of what sort of implications does, should this have for, for how we live our lives? Surely there must be some. So this was this was this beginning or continuation perhaps of this uh, of some exposure to some Buddhist ideas and also Taoist ideas in this book. But it, but yeah, this more of this curiosity and the sense of things not being what they seem. So at the end of that, that strange year, at the end of school, I, I passed these exams and went off to university and was quite excited about going to university, learning more about astronomy and physics and all this sort of stuff. But it was a little bit disappointing. Um, at university, the physics that was taught there was really focused on sort of applications. It wasn't, wasn't really concerned much with the philosophical side of it which is what I was really interested in, um, what the implications were for how we see the world and live in it. Um, however, it was, it was still interesting and, and, and useful. Um, a few other things happened about this time. Uh, I would sometimes come across uh, people like the, the Hare Krishnas and the Mormons. They'd you know, see them on the street or they'd come to the door and they'd have these ideas of their own about how the universe was and how we should live our lives in it and they sounded sort of convincing when you talk to them uh, but the confusing thing was they all had quite contradictory messages so I was quite confused by how these people could all sound convincing and yet say things that were quite different. It was only years later when I came across the Kalama Sutta in Buddhism um, that I um, got some guidance about what to do with this problem. The Kalamas, who are this uh, group of people who lived somewhere and kept having these sages come through and tell them one thing after another, all different stuff, and they didn't know what to do. So the Buddha eventually advised them that uh, you can't go by what's claimed to be true. You have to, you have to test it against direct knowledge from your own experience. And that was pretty much the sort of conclusion I'd come to myself. Um, from my experience. But at the time two of my friends um, converted to Christianity uh, somewhat unexpectedly and one of them I remember took me to this big rally once it was in, I uh, can't remember, one of the, some big stadium somewhere, a huge thing, thousands of people and this big uh, 
this big crowd with this charismatic preacher talking away down the bottom and at the end everyone was supposed to be up in a, you know, a frenzy of enthusiasm and would go down to get saved. And I was sitting with my friend and my friend, I could just feel that he really wanted me to <laughs> go down at the end and get saved. He really, that's what he, he really wanted for me, but I was completely unmoved by all this. So I, I just felt nothing. Um, and I was a little bit sort of com- confused by that. Um, well, maybe there's something wrong with me. If I, <laughs> I don't feel anything from this. But at the same time, I remembered something, another another sort of rally that I'd been to years, years before that, a quite different kind of one, where I had been really moved. And that was a, a peace rally that my parents had taken me to, a sort of anti-nuclear thing I think, in the Auckland domain. Um, and I remember that had actually moved me quite a lot. And around this time, I was also starting to become more interested and concerned about the environment. And so I decided this was maybe this was what I needed to do. And partly, I guess, from my, my sort of disillusionment with the academic um, physics that I was learning and all that stuff, uh, I wasn't sort of getting the sort of answers that I wanted from that. So I decided to switch. I, I got out of all that stuff and did a, a master's degree, started doing a master's degree in environmental science. Um, I had a sense that, a growing sense of this, this suffering that was happening in the world, not only for people and animals, but the whole planet was in some sense suffering and I wanted to do something to help. One thing that happened um, about this time, I'd been in my early 20s, um, I was on a train one day and uh, I used to take these suburban trains to and from uh, university and back home and had a lot of time to do a lot of reading on these trains. And one book I read was by this guy David Suzuki, he's a well-known sort of environmentalist. And I was reading this book, I, don't, I haven't been able to find it again, but uh, he's talking about, basically about interdependence really. He's talking about, there was a, a quote that he had in there about, in your own body there are molecules which have been uh, present in the bodies of every person who's lived on Earth for the last, I don't know what it was, 2,000 years or something like that. There's all these molecules in your body from all these people from, from the last however many hundreds or thousands of years it is. Uh, and I read this on this train this day and uh, suddenly just looked out the window of this train and then, uh, I don't really know, uh, but I could, I could experience what, he's, what he meant. It wasn't just words on a page. I, I looked out the window and I experienced this, this interdependence. I could feel that it was true, that the environment out there is actually is us and is in us and we are in it. Um, and I felt the urgency that there is for us to realise this At the time, I, you know, I really didn't understand what had, hap- what had happened, um, and I didn't have words to describe it, and I didn't, I wasn't keeping journals or anything, so I'm just going by my memory of that. <coughs> but it's a strong memory, and I think it's one of those things which helped to uh, help to sustain my my faith later on in practice. 
I'd also had some times where, again, I didn't really know how to experience, how to how to describe this sort of experience, but um, the way I described it when I finally talked to somebody else about it some years later was that I wasn't sure whether I existed or not. It was the closest I could come to at the time to what I was what I felt at these times, and you know, I didn't know what they were, and they were a bit scary. I, the only thing I could think of really at the time was that I might be going mad, <laughs> I might be losing my marbles. Um, it felt quite dangerous and um, frightening. I think now I would, I would say really what was happening was I was just starting to question who I was in, a, in quite a, you know, a more fundamental way and particularly questioning the, the ego self. Is this really who I am? Um, or is there something something deeper, questioning, yeah, asking, what am I? I just came across uh, a good line, a, a good line that describes this sort of sense in a novel by Marcel Proust. Um, he says, what an abyss of uncertainty whenever the mind feels overtaken by itself, when it, the seeker, is at the same time the dark region through which it must go seeking and where all its equipment will avail it nothing. That was how I felt. And I still feel that. Um, but now, in the context of practice, it's, it's not something uh, frightening really. It's, a, it's a, almost a kind of welcoming thing. And I feel that I understand that it's, it's something I have to look into rather than be afraid of. When I was in my early 20s, um, a member of my family had what was in those days called a nervous breakdown. I don't know what, maybe they're called something else now, but that was what they were called then. Um, he was never really properly diagnosed, I don't think, but he was clearly suffering from some kind of mental illness. Um, and this was a very frightening thing for me and a very painful time for everyone, for him and for the rest of the family, for me. Um, there were a couple of aspects of it. There was One was that his personality seemed to change overnight as far as, I, you know, as, far as my point of view. He became a different person and that, that was a, a scary thing normally think of personality, our own personality as being something really relatively fixed and doesn't, doesn't change overnight or in that sort of unpredictable way. Um, the other thing was I could sense you know, there, was this, there, was a, there was a time of a lot of suffering for all of us and I didn't know what to do. No one really seemed to know what to do, what, how to help. This fed my my desire to try and understand more about about life and how we can help other people uh, in suffering. I thought about this a lot at the time. Sometimes I would go off into the forest and think about stuff. Um, and at the time, I came up with this kind of idea about about suffering, um, although I didn't I didn't use that, that word, I called it my theory of problems. I was thinking about what is a problem? You say we've got a problem, what does that mean? 
And I've thought about this a lot and, and decided when we say we've got a problem, it means it's when, our, it's when our ideas about reality don't really match up with reality itself. And so we can try and change reality to fit our idea or we might have to change our idea to fit reality. Um, in hindsight, I can see this was, you know, kind of quite related to some some Buddhist ideas of the Four Noble Truths, um, suffering of unenlightened existence, and, and the way out. But I don't really know whether I'd been exposed to that sort of idea already, or whether I just sort of came up with something similar on my own. Either way, it helped me to relate to the teachings of Buddhism when I did really come across them. My, my father, who, as I said, had always liked sort of philosophising, and we used, we used to have some philosophical discussions around the kitchen table <coughs> about all kinds of stuff, and they were always quite interesting, but um, I found them quite frustrating at the same time because they never seemed to lead anywhere. They always seemed to end up with, with problems about the definitions of words that we were using and, and maybe we were using the same word to mean different things. And it always seemed to wind up in these sort of, these sort of swamps of, of, of meaning and, and, and frustrations of language really. Um, so around that time I started to suspect that the answers to the questions that I wanted answers to were not going to be found through language or, or thought. There seemed to be some limits to it that, that couldn't really be got beyond. So I uh, finished this um, master's degree that I'd, that I'd been studying for and had some time um, unemployed, looking for work as an environmental scientist with uh, incredibly bad timing. This was the early 90s and the, the um, Department of Scientific and Industrial Research had just been restructured mm -hmm. and done away with and there were thousands of scientists running around looking for work. <laughs> so it was terrible timing and um, I, I didn't get a job. <laughs> I spent, spent a long time looking for work and never got any. Um, but uh, some other things, interesting things happened during that time. I had my first serious relationship at the time um, it wasn't very long, I think probably six months or something, and not always terribly happy either. But uh, this woman I, I was going out with had a book about meditation. And it's something I hadn't really come across before. Uh, it was a very secular kind of book. I think it described itself, or well, the practice that it was describing, uh, described it as health meditation. It was really very much focused on the health of the body and stress relief um, and steered clear of anything that might be construed as vaguely sort of religious or spiritual or anything like that. But anyway, um, because I'd not really come across meditation at all up to that point, I read this book and thought, oh, this sounds quite good. I might have a go at this. So I practiced it on my own um, off and on for um, some years after that. I think the practice involved visualising a candle flame and just focusing on that <coughs> for the duration of the, of the sit. So it was quite simple. Uh, and <coughs> yeah, that, that was my first experience of meditation. And 
although eventually it sort of uh, dropped away again as other things came and went in my life, it was something that never completely went away. Um, I guess I sensed that there was something in there that I had to explore further. After I'd broken up with this woman, um, which was another difficult thing, I bought a book about Buddhism um, by a guy called John Snelling. And uh, I, I guess, I don't remember this time all that well, but I guess that shows that I had some interest in, in the whole sort of meditation, but also the Buddhism, the, the, the wider context of practice outside of meditation as well, ethics and uh, other things that, that practice involves. Um, after this time of looking for work and not finding any, I decided um, if I was going to get work in the, in the kind of area that I wanted to work in, I was probably going to have to go back and do a PhD. So, uh, as it happened, I um, got a scholarship to go back and went back to university, started, started again there. And there was a meditation group actually at university. I thought, oh, meditation group, I'll try that. Um, but found that rather disappointing. It was actually sort of yoga meditation with mantra chanting and a, someone playing a guitar and singing and stuff. It's not really what I was after at all. Um, so I, I think I, I carried on doing this, this meditation sort of on and off. Usually when, when times were tough, uh, I, would, I would get back to it again. But I didn't have a sort of regular practice or anything like that at the time. When I was about three years into my um, PhD, uh, another part of my life that I'd been neglecting for a long time resurfaced. Um, this was music. I'd, when, I was re when I was young, I'd always play drum kit. When I was a young boy, if you'd asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, it was I wanted to be a jazz drummer. It was just the most exciting thing I could think of that I wanted to do. Uh, so I played drums um, throughout school until kind of high school when I started having to sit exams and things that sort of fell away. I always listened to a lot of music and I had a friend at university when I started university who introduced me to classical music as well which I'd never really experienced and got interested in that and so yeah halfway through this PhD this music thing decided that it couldn't be neglected anymore and I had to do some more of it. Um, so I had this desire to develop my creative side again, which I'd really neglected through this period of becoming interested in science and physics and all that kind of thing. I'd, I'd steered away from all that sort of creative side, which uh, I'd, had been a really important part of me when I was younger. Um, it was something that apparently I couldn't suppress forever. It came back quite strongly. One thing I did at this time um, came across by accident, a friend, a friend of mine, a fellow student at university actually had introduced me to a book called The Artist's Way. Um, some of you may have come across it. It's a, a course that you can put yourself through for developing creativity. And one of the main tools that it, that it teaches is a thing called morning pages, where every morning uh, when you get up, you write three pages without stopping in an A4 exercise book. And it's a way of creating something without judging it. Time. There's no time, you have to do it fast. There's no time for the thinking mind to start judging it or deciding whether it's good or terrible or anything. You just get it down and you do it every day, whether you like it or not. Um, so this is a practice I took up. 
And I continued doing that. I did it quite uh, religiously uh, every day for I think nearly about 13 years after that, actually. A long time. Um, and I think that kind of discipline got also stood me in good stead for when I came to do Zen later. And so I already had that habit of getting up in the morning and doing some kind of a practice is the first thing. Uh, around this time, I guess partly because I was a little uncertain about my, my direction in life, I had this my study that I was doing, but this music stuff was coming up, which was really a lot more fun, and uh, unfortunately quite hard to make a living out of. And um, I was a bit uncertain about that, but also had some, uh, some issues come up from the relationship I'd had um, a year or two before, which were a bit unresolved. <coughs> And so around about this time, I started to have a few bouts of depression, um, feeling very quite lonely and isolated, and these feelings of, of worthlessness coming up, and feeling that I wanted another relationship, but um, it wasn't happening, and also fearing having another relationship because of the, the problems and the, the sort of pain that I'd experienced in the last one. Um, so yeah, I got into a bit of a dark spot for a while. Luckily, I had a friend, um, a flatmate actually, who, who worked in mental health and advised me, oh, maybe you could try getting some counselling. And it was something that I'd never considered. Um, it's really not a very South Auckland thing. I didn't know anyone who'd ever had counselling. I thought it was only something you did when you had really had problems. You know, something I'd do. But anyway, because um, I was in a bit of a, in a, in a bad place, I, I decided to have a go at it. And had this, uh, we saw this guy every week for about six months, I think, maybe more. And in combination with the, some of the other stuff I was doing at the time, with this um, artist way course and developing the creativity, and these morning pages that I was doing, journaling, uh, it all kind of came together in a really good way. And a lot of positive changes happened at this time. Um, my creative side really did develop a lot. I um, threw, this is another one of these combinations of chance um, circumstances and happy accidents which have been the way that most of the best things in my life have happened. I met this guy, Philip, Phil Danson, who, who was a musician that I was, I was a great fan of his already and he invited me to join this um, percussion group that he'd had for a long, long time. And it was just, uh, I couldn't believe that, that that had happened. It was like a dream come true, really. And I began performing again with this group. And yeah, in combination with this work I was doing uh, on myself, things started to get a lot more positive around this time. And I, I, I returned to a, self, uh, to a sense of um, accepting myself again and got to a point where uh, I felt it was okay that I was still single and, and that, that, was a, that was fine. I really got to the point where I felt that. Um, so then the inevitable happened and I was, I was 28 and I met Sally. <laughs> uh, another one of these chance events, combination of accidents. Um, we, we met and neither of us was looking for a relationship. <laughs> In fact we were flatmates so we really shouldn't be having one. Um, but it felt like 
It felt like something that that was something that I couldn't control. Um, it was just something that was going to happen. Um, and so that's that's one of the most wonderful things that's happened to me. At that time, um, she was practicing at the Auckland Buddhist Centre, and I went along. Uh, sometimes I start, I went along and had some meditation instruction at the Auckland Buddhist Centre. They used to run these courses. They probably still do, uh, teaching people to meditate in, very, in a very kind of thorough and um, systematic kind of way. So I learned quite a lot, although I never quite felt like I belonged there in some way. So I wasn't tempted to get involved in the way that, that Sally was. Um, at that time, partly through reading that I'd done, I was interested in Taoism actually. Uh, I'd read the Tao Te Ching and some of these um, crossover books between sort of uh, modern science and, and Eastern religion that talk about Taoism, that sounded pretty interesting. But of course there were no real opportunities to pursue that here. As far as I could tell there were uh, there wasn't there were no Taoist centres that I knew of that you know, I could go to. Uh, there wasn't much to, to go on. So uh, I finished my study and immediately afterwards uh, went overseas. I was travelling for a while. Um, I was performing with this percussion group that I was with and in between performances I did a big, uh, my, my OE, I did a solo cycling trip through Eastern Europe which was fascinating but quite tough and from time to time when things got when things got, got hard I would return to meditation um, sometimes and, and found that useful but I still didn't have a sort of regular practice or anything like that. Sally came over and joined me, we cycled through Turkey for three months. Uh, I, was, I was still doing these morning pages all through my travelling and yeah, Turkey was quite difficult as well. I'd sort of burnt myself out a little bit in, the, in Eastern Europe, travelling alone through there. Um, and so it wasn't, an, it wasn't entirely an, an idyllic sort of holiday, but uh, fascinating all the same. And yeah, some, it taught me that I, when, things, when things got difficult, I could always return to this, to this meditation and it somehow seemed to help. Um, so I returned home and began work. I got a job as a researcher um, at the Auckland University, part-time, um, and I'm, that's the job I've still got, and I'm still part-time. So the rest of my time was devoted to mostly to music and also to voluntary work, which is something that I started doing at that time. <coughs> I still had the sense that I wanted to somehow help uh, somehow to help people and help, help make the world a better place in some way if I could and I guess didn't really have the sense that my job was fulfilling that need. So I started doing a lot of volunteer work uh, in cycling advocacy. I was uh, working to try and make um, Auckland and, and New Zealand a sort of better place for people to ride bikes in and something I'm still involved in although not to the same extent. Uh, it's voluntary work of that kind is something you can easily get burned out and as I found uh, it really starts to take over your life if you let it and starts to seem like a burden at times. Um, something that I found 
when I did start to practice Zen, uh, but later the only way I could really get through it was to remind myself that this work that I was doing was voluntary, something I was offering. It was dana, really. It's so easy to forget that and to see it as something that's imposed on you from outside. Um, in 2003, uh, Sally had started her own PhD and she went away to Australia for most of that year. And I was left here and I found that pretty tough, a bit tougher than I had expected. And again, I started sitting and this time I started sitting every day. I started sitting every morning. And as it happened just around the corner from us, uh, the, there was a group called the Long White Cloud Sangha who were followers of Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Zen teacher. And so, because they were just around the corner, I decided, oh, I'll go and see what they do. And so I'd go along and sit with them, you know, I think it was Tuesday nights. Um, and I really took to this teaching of Thich Nhat Hanh, this teachings of interbeing and the environment really resonated with me, with my interest in the environment and his emphasis on engagement, engaged Buddhism, uh, not just sitting but also this helping. Um, so I began to get more involved with this group and did a few uh, short retreats with them and also did a retreat with another teacher uh, called Tarchin, who's a sort of a very eclectic Madriana teacher. He did a retreat over in the Coromandel that I went to. Uh, so I was starting to get more and more, and more involved in Buddhism, finally. Uh, throughout the years before that, I would never have called myself a Buddhist. Um, I was starting to sort of turn that corner and really identify with this path as being something that I really had to do. With the Long White Cloud Sangha, there was no actual teacher there. It was a sort of self-led group. There was, a, there was a teacher who was then called Shalom, now Sister Foe, who lives over in the Coromandel. He would come along sometimes, uh, but mostly it was the, the people going along. One of them would have to lead the sitting. And so after a while, I began helping to lead these weekly sittings. And I felt a little bit uncomfortable about this, really, because I knew that I didn't really have any experience. And I didn't feel qualified to do it. Um, Partly that's just a pattern that I have. I often feel like I'm not qualified to do the things that I'm doing uh, in all kinds of areas. But uh, yeah, it was, a, it, was, it was a little bit uncomfortable for me. And I also felt a need for a kind of practice that really challenged me more. It was a bit less, a bit less safe, uh, something that would push me out of my comfort zone a little bit more. That same year, a friend of mine died of cancer suddenly. Uh, he'd, been, he'd been very healthy and you know, a very fit guy and suddenly got diagnosed with this cancer, I think it was in his lymphatic system, just went everywhere suddenly and he was dead in six months. Uh, so this was another time that I found quite challenging, especially as Sally was still away. I was on my own there and uh, before he died I would go and visit him at the hospice and Again, I had the sense that I wanted to help him somehow, but I didn't really know how. I uh, wasn't sure what to do. And maybe if I sort of understood something more about life and how, 
how the world works, that perhaps I'd be able to help him more. And I remember coming out of the hospice one day and uh, looking out and seeing the trees, the green trees outside the hospice, and it was like seeing them for the, for the first time, or maybe the last time. They were sort of new and very vivid suddenly. I guess the, the nearness of the that sense of death being very near suddenly made things very, very real, very, very alive. In 2004, um, Sally was back, um, and there another thing happened, which was <coughs> a chance event. One of these another chance events, which turned out to be one of the great things that happened to me, and that was my friend Phil, who I perform music with. Uh, we we went to a movie, and Sally and I and, and Phil went to a movie. And after the movie, oh, there were these two people there that he introduced us to, some old friends of his, and they were Sensei and Richard who we had not met until then. And they'd just recently returned from Rochester and were setting up the Auckland Zen Centre in Auckland. So we found we had some things in common. We, there were some filmmakers that we both liked and so we started um, seeing them a bit. And eventually Sally and then I began attending the lunchtime sittings with Sensei at AUT. Once a week, Sensei would come along and we have sort of Q and A session and, and then Zazen. Um, I really felt the importance at that point of having a teacher, a live teacher present, um, and the possibilities that opened up uh, in that situation. So at this point, I decided I really felt the need to start again in, in practice. I felt I had to forget everything that I thought I knew about practice and about meditation and about Buddhism and all that stuff and just start again as a, as a beginner um, with Sensei as my teacher. So that's what I did. At some point during 2007, uh, something possessed me to do a Sashin, two-day Sashin. I'd never been to the Zen Centre. I had no experience of formal Zen practice. Uh, and somehow Sensei agreed that I could have a go at the machine. Two days machine at the Friary it was a total shock to me. Um, sleep deprivation. Uh, I, I overdid the instruction about light eating and put loads of pressure on myself. Uh, I'd read the three pillars of Zen. Uh, I knew what was meant to happen. <laughs> I had these incredible pains in my neck and shoulders from this pressure that I was putting myself through. I fainted in the first show on the day one, <laughs> peeled over on my face uh, and felt pretty miserable. But I sat it through to the end and I could sense, even though it had been really difficult, the most, you know, one of the hardest things I'd ever done and incredibly challenging, <laughs> that this was something that I really had to do. So, I should probably leave it there, shall I? Am I out of time? Yep. <laughs> That's pretty much the story. The rest, as they say, is history. Uh, so, if there's any, do we have time for a question or two? Or, or not? Yep. Yep. Any question or a question?
comments or anything, fire away. Yeah. Okay, in that case, we'll leave it there as a site for vows. All beings without number, I bow to the great endless blind passions, I bow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I bow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I bow to attain all beings without number. I bow to liberate endless blind passions. I bow to a Dharma gates beyond measure, I bow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I bow to attain all beings without number. I bow to liberate endless blind passions. I bow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure I bow to penetrate The great way of Buddha I bow to Tuesday night we have Buddha's Enlightenment Ceremony, so that uh, we'll be having two rounds of sitting and that will be followed by uh, the um, ceremony recognizing the um, Enlightenment of Buddha, the Sikha Day, and that will be followed by a Thank you.